the way that I would like to set up the passage that we're going to look at is to tell a little bit of my own story. I was a very, very angry man. I didn't know I was an angry man. My wife knew I was angry. My children knew I was angry, but I didn't know I was angry. If you had characterized me that way, it would have hurt my feelings. I was a pastor. I was in the middle of destroying my life and my ministry, and I did not know it. Luella would come to me very faithfully, and she did this very faithfully because she knew what was going on, and would hold that anger in front of me. And I refused to listen, I refused to hear, I would wrap my robes of righteousness around me, of which I have none, and would tell her what a great husband she had. There was one moment in an act of true humility, I said these words to her. 95% of the women in our church would love to be married to a man like me. Luella quickly informed me she was in the 5%. It was a disaster, and I won't extend the story, but God in glorious convicting grace showed me myself, broke through the blindness. <clears throat> I want to say this. Don't ever, ever resist the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit. You are not being judged. You are being graced. God is not turning His back on you. He's wrapping arms of love around you. Run toward conviction. Fire your inner lawyer. I can say that because I have an inner law firm. And run toward that conviction. Well, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1, or your iPhones or iPads or whatever weird sad off-brand you're carrying. <laughs> that was a joke for your overly serious people in the room. And I'm going to read for you from verses 3 through 9. This is the holy, divine word of the Lord. His divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they will keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, for whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted he is blind, having forgotten he has been cleansed 
from his former sins. When you hear a story like my story, you have to ask the question, how could this anger, destructive, harmful, live in the life of a believer? Not just live, but grow. Not just live, but become dominant. How does that ever happen? And if you can't answer that question, there are major pieces of the gospel you don't yet understand. This passage that I read for you is intended in Scripture to be a diagnostic passage. It's meant to address something that's not functioning the way it's supposed to function. And you know that effective cure is always attached to the accuracy of diagnosis, right? Wrong diagnosis, you'll never get a cure. And so this, Bible, this passage in the Bible, because the gospel is the best human diagnostic that ever existed. It's meant to do that. Now, there's something else I have to say about this passage. This passage has inverted logic in it. I don't mean that it doesn't make sense. There's not one word in the Bible that doesn't make sense. But you have to start at the bottom of the passage to get the full intent of the top of the passage. That's the way the passage is designed. So I'd like you to look at, with me at verse 8. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now here's what Peter is proposing. That there are people who are true believers. They have been redeemed by the blood of the Jesus. They have the Holy Spirit living inside of them. They have Scripture in their hands, but their lives are ineffective and unproductive. Their lives are not producing the expected harvest of the fruit of faith. Let me say that again. Their lives are not producing the expected harvest of the fruit of faith. Now, who are these people? Maybe you'd be tempted to think, well, there must be some kind of just loser class of Christians. They're the ones that don't get it. We ought to put them in the body of Christ in black t-shirts so we'd all know. Stay away from these people. They're trouble. Well, that's not what this passage is about. Because if you would sit here now firing your inner lawyer, and opening your heart. Who in this room could ever, ever say in every way possible, my life, my choices, my actions, my words and decisions, and my relationships always perfectly reflect the expected harvest of the fruit of faith? No one in this room can say that. Sorry if I've hurt your feelings, but it's actually my job. No one can say that. Maybe that you have patterns of a day where you're a selfish and irritable husband. Guys, don't look at me like you don't know what I'm talking about. Maybe you have more joy 
and buying a fly rod that will take you away from your wife than actually spending time with her. Maybe it's secret patterns of lust that are moving toward addiction. Maybe it's materialism that you find way more joy in adding to your pile of possessions than you do sacrificially living for the kingdom of God. Maybe you haven't yet joined God's generosity mission on earth. That's sin. Maybe you're proud. And you all the time, in ways you don't understand, take credit in your life for what you could have never produced on your own. Maybe it's gossip. You find way too much joy in carrying a tale. Maybe our young person is just patterns of rebellion and disobedience and disrespect for your parents. It's an ugly thing. Now what I'm trying to say to you is whether I've targeted you or not, that this passage wraps its arms around all of us. That's what's beautiful about it. Because in some way, all of us are still yet not demonstrating our life the full harvest of the fruit of faith. Now, you should be asking this question next. Well, how does that happen? Look back at verse 8. Verse 8 says, If these qualities are you, yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unproductive. So Peter is saying this. If these qualities are in your life, faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love, those produce fruitfulness in your relationships, fruitfulness at work, fruitfulness in your personal life, fruitfulness in money, fruitfulness in sexuality, a life that's fruitful in the sight of your Redeemer. The problem isn't my situation. The problem isn't my relationships. The problem isn't my history. My problem is me. And when something is in control of my heart, other than these things, it shows in the fruit of my life. Stop pointing at other people. Stop excusing. Stop minimizing. Stop saying, if only... What if? Because what you're doing is you're erecting self-atoning arguments that minimize your sin, and you cannot minimize your sin without devaluing God's grace. Can I make this confession? This is a sad confession but I wish you'd make it with me. I'm the reason I don't grow. Do you hear me? I'm the reason I don't grow. It's not Luella. It's not my children. 
It's not my ministry partners. It's not my neighbors. It's, it's none of those things. That's why this diagnostic is so important. Peter aims the problem inside of me, not outside of me. That's why change a situation, change a relationship, change of circumstance never works. I can run from a situation. I can run from a relationship, but I can't run from me. I've found when I try to run from me, I always show up with me at the end of the run. Isn't that amazing? Now, there's another question that this passage begs. Why don't these people have these character qualities in their life? They're ours for the taking. <coughs> They're the fruit of grace. I have no power whatsoever to make myself a loving man. None. But I have grace. Well, verse 9 answers that question. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind. Listen to this. Having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Peter says the issue is identity. In fact, I want to make that clearer. The issue is identity amnesia. I deeply believe that there's a plague of identity amnesia that's weakening the power and the influence of the body of Christ. You've forgotten who you are. Now here's, here's the core principle of this sermon. When you forget who you are in Christ... Stay with me. You quit pursuing all that belongs to you in Christ. When you forget who you are in Christ, the enormous potential, you haven't just been saved, but between the already and the not yet, you've been given brand new identity and way huger potential as a human being. When you forget who you are in Christ, you quit pursuing all that belongs to you in Christ. Now we're ready for the top of the passage. Let me read. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Literally, you could do ten sermons on that alone. His divine power has granted. What Peter is saying is, an act of redemptive love, God 
harness the forces of nature and control the events of human history, unleashed his sovereign power so that the world would march toward the coming of the Son, so that his Son would live a perfectly righteous life because we're incapable of doing that. Die a substitutionary death. That means he died in our place. Let me just say this. Jesus didn't purchase savability on the cross. He took names to the cross. And rose again in an ultimate act of victory. And then ascended at the right hand of the Father. That means he can grant what he wants to grant to us because Jesus now reigns. You don't just serve a Savior. You see, you serve a living, reigning King. The reign of Jesus is not just in the future. 1 Corinthians 15 says he is now reigning, putting enemies under his feet. All that exercise of power is for us. That's what he's saying. His divine power has granted. When something needs to be granted to you, what do you learn from that? you learn that you're completely incapable of getting it on your own. You're never going to earn it. You're never going to deserve it. You're never going to achieve it. It has to be granted. Whatever he's going to say next, you have to know it's completely beyond your ability, completely outside of your human job description, completely alien to your capabilities. It has to be granted. Wow, wow, wow. We should just pause at these moments and sing the doxology. I'm tempted. It wouldn't be the first time I sung in the middle of a sermon, so. This divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. This is very important. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Now, there's a reason that Pat, Peter uses two words. Why, he, why doesn't he say his divine power has granted all things we need for life. Peter doesn't say that because he knows his audience. And we would say, isn't it wonderful? God has given us everything for eternal life. Our future with him. Is that wonderful? You can say yes. But it's not what he's talking about. He said a second word. All things that pertain to life and 
godliness. That immediately tells you he's talking about the period of time between the already of your conversion and you're not yet of your home going. He's talking about now. <coughs> this is mind-boggling. Peter's actually saying every single thank you. That act right there is one of the proofs of the existence of God. He's actually saying something that we have to embrace. It has to be central in our right here, right now belief system. Here it is, that every single thing you would ever need to be what you're supposed to be and to do what you're supposed to do, God has already given you. I will. I'm good at taking directions from the crowd. Uh, God has already given you in His Son, result of the exercise of His divine power, everything you would ever need to be what you're supposed to be and to do what you're supposed to do as His children. You have it all. Now here's what I think has happened to the church. It, it makes me want to weep. That I think we often live with a great big gap in the middle of our gospel. We're good at the gospel past, the forgiveness that we've received in Jesus. And we're good at the gospel future, the hope that we have in Him. But we're not too clear on the nowism of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the right here, right now benefits of the person and work of Jesus. What are those benefits? Everything. Everything. You will never be in a situation. You will never be in a relationship. You will never be in a circumstance. You will never face a decision. You will never struggle with a desire. You will never face a temptation. You will never meet a person where you don't have everything that you need to be what you're supposed to be in that moment and to do what God has called you to do. Everything. Now, if you're sitting here as a believer... And that doesn't make you a little bit excited. You may be comatose. <laughs> and if you're an unbeliever, wouldn't you want everything? Why are you frantically looking around at places where what you're hungering for can never be found? It's so sad. That guy, that girl, that job, that house, that car, those clothes, they never can do this for you. Jesus can. Jesus will. Now, in case you haven't grasped the implications of having everything and how it should change the way you live, before I 
move down in the passage, I want to give you an illustration. Pretend with me that I get a call from the central office of TD Bank in Philadelphia that my great uncle, Elmo Schnortz, <laughs> has left me with $100 million. I <laughs> just said, wow, I love it. <laughs> Thank you for reinforcing the illustration. <laughs> I guess that check worked. Uh, and so I'm, I, I can't believe it. I, I can't believe that I'm rich beyond anything that I ever conceived I would ever experience. And I run and tell Luella and... They tell me what I, can, what I have to do to withdraw the money and I get the requisite documents and I withdraw $10,000 from TD Bank and I take Luella out to eat. Paris. <laughs> and we have the most awesome, no money problems few days in Paris. We come back home. Luella is the one who does our finances because she lives closer to reality than I do. <laughs> and she's, things go back to normal. And she's paying bills and stretching the budget. And she comes to me and she says, Paul, I don't get what's going on here. You told me we were rich, rich. And we're still living like we're poor. Imagine me saying this to her. Do you know how hard it is to go down that bank? Center City of Philadelphia has one-way streets, so if you can't find a place to park, you can't go around the block, you just enter further and further away from your destination. I ended up in New Jersey once. <laughs> and you don't know if your car is going to be there <laughs> when you come back, and, and then you get to the bank, and you have to wait in that Disney World line, and then... They treat you like a criminal even though the money belongs to you and they even want to fingerprint you and I'm afraid I'll use the wrong finger. And <laughs> If you're my wife, what would you be saying at this point? You're rich. What would ever keep you from getting everything that belongs to you? That's this passage. Why, brothers and sisters, would we live like we're poor when we're so rich, we have everything? Bill Gates doesn't have everything. Jeff Bezos doesn't have everything. Mark Zuckerberg doesn't have everything. We have everything. Why would I live in a poverty marriage? Why would I have a poverty mentality toward temptation? 
Why would I have a poverty way of approaching sex and money? Why would I have poverty relationships? Why would I have a poverty way of viewing my relationship to my parents? Why would I have a poverty, poverty relationship to my university? Why would I have a poverty perspective on old age? Why would I ever live as poor when I've been given everything? So here's what, having made that declaration, and I won't read all of the verses, Peter says, for this very reason, if you are rich, it only makes sense to live the way I'm about to advise you to live. For this very reason. Are you ready? Well, I don't know why I'm asking you. I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> For this very reason, make every effort. Effort to do what? To get everything that belongs to you in Christ. Listen. The list of character qualities that follows are not moral goals for you to achieve to because you have no ability to make those steps. This is not an Amazon self-improvement book. This is the Bible. This is not living your best self. Make every effort to run after the riches that have been supplied to you by your Redeemer. Riches you could have never achieved, never earned, never deserved. They are only ever granted. But they have been granted. How do you do that? We wake up in the morning And you pray. Lord, there's evidence in my life that I'm not self-controlled. I eat more than I should eat. I spend more than I should spend. I don't say no to myself when I'm angry. Won't you meet me today by your grace and empower me to fight against those things? Now, you, you have to know you never fight that battle on your own. You're fighting in the midst of what has been granted you, and, and part of what has been granted you is the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. When it comes to these character qualities, the role of the Holy Spirit, which is part of the granted grace that you've been given, is to convict you of sin and to empower you for righteousness. So he works to point out the, pla the places where you are still choosing to be poor 
and then empower you to run after the riches. That means, let me use an example of my anger. What I finally realized is in those moments when I'm angry, because the Holy Spirit lives inside of me, I actually have power to say no to raging emotions and raging desires and turn and go in another direction. Praise God. It's not just that I don't experience anger anymore. I experience divine rescuing power in the face of anger. And by the progress of sanctifying grace, by God's grace, someday that anger will be gone. So he says, make every effort, do everything that's necessary to get what belongs to you in Christ. I deeply believe that begins in the morning with humble, honest confession. Don't act like you've arrived. Grace is the one school that doesn't have a graduation ceremony. There are no grace graduates in this room. When you are making every effort, it means you are humbly recognizing you don't have it yet. There's work in front of you. It hasn't been granted, but you're not living in light of it. It's a beautiful picture of God's love in this passage. Because between the already and the not yet, your Lord, in an act of love, gave you everything he'd give you so you would thrive. So you would thrive. He wants his people to thrive. He's not a taskmaster. He's not a slave driver. He doesn't put his commands in your life to destroy your life. He wants you to thrive. This is a thriving passage. To begin to experience the glory of the riches that are yours as his child. So I would say to you this morning, I ask this question. Where in your life is there an evidence of a poverty mentality? Places you say it's just your personality when no, it's just sin. Saying it's just your personality blames God for your sin. Saying it's just this person that I live with. It's just my boss. It's just this traffic. It's my kids. I was holy before they were born. (laughs) And the person you're married to says, no, you weren't. I want to say something else because I think my job is to pastor you through these passages. 
you're a husband and wife, a child, a friend, please, please, don't sit here in this sermon and listen for someone else. It's so easy to do. I've done that. I, at the end of a phenomenal message by James Montgomery Boyce, I leaned over to Luella and said, I'm so glad our kids are here. And she gave me the look that only a wife can give. <laughs> and she was right. Listen for you. Before the foundations of the world were put in place, your Lord not only decided to bring you into his family, but he decided to bring you to this church. And he decided to bring you into this room today. And he decided that you would hear this sermon today because he loves you and wants you to thrive. Why would you live poor when by grace you have been made unimaginably, inexhaustibly rich? Let's pray.